and thank you for tuning in to the More Doors podcast, where we bring you the information you need to make important decisions about investment, real estate, and your overall financial wealth. Okay, our first guest today is Charles Seaman. He is the Senior Acquisition Manager and Asset Manager of Three Oaks Management in North Carolina. He's responsible for all of the company's uh, underwriting of deals. He finds investors. He manages the properties once he's, they've got them in their possession. And we're just so lucky to have him on the show. Thanks for coming today, Charles. John, thanks for having me. I think that syndication is a fantastic uh, avenue for investment and acquiring more, more doors in your portfolio. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started? Sure, John. So... My story starts from Brooklyn, New York. I was born and raised there, and I lived most of my life there up until last June. And in 2005, I started working for a gentleman who was a commercial real estate investor. And and I can't say that I was so much one who went out and actively sought real estate. It was more so that I kind of fell into it and developed a passion for it and wound up becoming you know fairly knowledgeable about it. So the gentleman that I worked for, uh, at the time I started with him, I was 20 years old, and for lack of a better term, I was young, dumb, and broke. And I was in need of a a job. My mother had become disabled. And prior to that, I was working as a bank teller. And I said, well, this isn't going to cut the mustard. I need to go out there and find a real job. So I really didn't know what I was getting myself into initially. And I initially wound up working with this gentleman who was a commercial real estate investor. And he also had a few other businesses. And my role there eventually expanded to include helping him manage all of his different properties and businesses. And of the different industries that he owned, owned things in, commercial real estate was always the one that I gravitated most to. So fast forward a couple of years after being there about a decade, uh, let's go to 2015, I started dabbling into real estate. And initially I thought about single family and, and wholesaling, but I determined a couple of things. Uh, one, truthfully, I really didn't like them as much. And two, my skill set was already developed in commercial real estate. So while there are similarities between commercial and residential, there are some different skill sets that you need to be successful into. So I thought if there was a way that I could be doing commercial deals right from the get-go, it would just be more appealing and just a better use of my, my time and my skill set. So the difference between myself and the guy that I worked for was that the guy I worked for had his own capital. So he was able to go out there and do these deals with his own money. And I wasn't in that position. I knew that I mm-hmm. had the knowledge and the expertise to find and to run these deals, but I didn't have the, the capital to go out there and fund them. So fast forward a little bit further, 2016, that's the first time I'd heard about syndication. And I started learning about it little by little in 2017 and 18. And in mid-2017, I started working on it actively on a part-time basis. And lo and behold, a year and a half later, I decided that I wanted to make it a more a more uh, substantial part of my my daily routine. And at that point, I I relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina in June 2019, because that's the area that my partners and I decided we wanted to focus our business on. So I figured, how do you get to know the target market better than by living and working in it every day? So that was my thought for relocating. And so far, it's it's made some progress. So I think it's been a good move. Uh, Here we are in the midst of 2020. And amidst the global pandemic and some craziness throughout the world. It's, it's been a pretty good year for me. And I've had a lot of growth in my real estate business that's put me on a good track for 2021. That sounds good. How many uh, deals have do you have in the works or have you completed so far? So far, I've completed two deals. So I have two deals. I have a 92-unit deal over in, 
in the Atlanta, Georgia market, and a 48-unit deal that we just closed in Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, I have two more deals that my team was recently awarded, one of which is in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the other in Columbia, South Carolina. So overall, we're keeping things focused throughout the Southeast, and we're starting to build some traction little by little. Wow, that sounds really exciting. So what do you typically try to achieve for your clients in terms of an ROI? So most times we're shooting for deals that have 16 plus percent average annualized rate of return. Now, there are some variables in there. So depending on the asset class in the market, that can vary upward or downward. So if we're in a major market like Charlotte or Atlanta, where you're actually in the city, you're probably going to see a little bit lower return. Uh, If you're in a tertiary market, you'll probably see a higher return. And conversely, I would say the same thing for asset class. So we predominantly focus on B and C assets. On B assets, you'll get a lower return, but you get a better tenant base. So it's kind of a trade-off. It depends on which animal you're looking for. But at a bare minimum, I would say absolute bare minimum, 12 to 13%. And on the higher side, we're looking you know, 20 and sometimes 25%, but I probably would never actively market 25%. <laughs> Right. You never want to overpromise. Yes, I, I agree. It's, it's worked well for Apple and Google. So who am I to judge? <laughs> <laughs> so um, as the general partner, uh, you and your company, what are the benefits of being the general partner, being not just someone who's putting your money into a syndication, but the person who is actually organizing and putting together the deal? So there's a couple of benefits. For me personally, I, I genuinely enjoy what I do. So that's one benefit because it's, so, it's nice to make money, but it's it's even better to enjoy it. <laughs> um, so for me, I, I do enjoy it. And secondly, you know, some people like the passive role. Some people like the active role. Uh, perhaps just my, my nature, I tend to be a control freak. So I enjoy having control over what happens and setting up the deal. And, and generally, I think having the experience that I do, I have a pretty good background for it. So most times with me, I'm in charge of broker relations. I go out there and meet brokers. I nurture existing relationships. And then I get the deals and then I take them and underwrite them. So I do all of the initial analysis. And then I'm usually the one on our team who will determine, okay, let's submit an offer on this deal. So usually I'll control that process pretty much up to that point. And then we have other team members that get involved to, uh, to help facilitate it and move it further. So the benefit to being the GP is you know, from a financial standpoint, you know, there, there will be a lot of time up front that you spend that you're not necessarily going to get paid for. And I always tell people there's a lot of money in syndication, but that money is usually not at the beginning. It's more of a long-term thing. But if you have the if you have the ability to wait it out and to trust the system, I would say if you do the work, eventually you'll start get, you'll start getting rewarded for it. Right. Um. So, how many investors do you uh? typically need for a typical deal? I mean, what's the typical raise that you guys take and how many investors it take to do that? Is there a minimum um, investment, So, so it's going to vary from deal to deal. So normally, you know, the goal is to get as few investors in there as possible. So if you can have one or two investors funded, that's always desirable just because there's less, less reporting, less people to deal with, less opinions, but that's not always practical. So on our first deal, the 92 unit one we did in Georgia, that one there had a capital raise of you know, a little north of $2.2 million, And we wound up with something like 21 investors. So there, there was a pretty good amount of them that came in there. <coughs> Excuse me. The second deal we did, the capital raise was a little bit north of $1.3 million, And that one there, <coughs> excuse me, we had either 11 or 12 investors. 
So both deals we've done so far have had a pretty good amount of investors, and that's something that you know we're, we're very happy with. Uh, the first deal we did, we went a minimum investment of twenty five thousand dollars, and the second deal we did fifty thousand, which is probably what we'll stick with for the foreseeable future. So every group has their own minimum investment requirement. Something that we had heard many times before getting actively involved and act actually running our own deal was that if you set the minimum, people will usually meet you at that minimum. So generally, what I would recommend to anybody starting out, we thought setting a $25,000 minimum in our first deal would be good. So it would give people a chance to kind of whet their appetite with us. But what, what we realized is that it just encourages people to invest at the minimum. So generally, I would suggest making it a little bit higher so you can get a little bit uh, more control over that process. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so couple things I want to ask you about from that last uh, explanation. There's a, So there's several members of your team. You've talked about what you do. What do the other members of your team do? And, you know, what is the value that each individual brings to Sure. So my partner, Adam, is in charge of investor relations. So his role is really to go out there and actively pursue new investors. And the same way that I do with brokers and broker relationships, he does with investors and investor relationships. So he'll be the first point of contact that usually does our, we have a standard passive investor presentation we do. So that way we give people an overview of what the process is and we get a chance to, to know them a little bit and also understand what their investment goals are. And then he takes them through that process going from the initial meeting all the way up until potentially investing with us. And then our third partner, Wayne, he's a retired CFO. Uh, he has 40 years of finance experience and he's been involved with everything from from initi initiating and installing retirement plans at his previous companies to asset selection, and he's also a CPA. So he's really more of a financial advisor, and he helps us in different roles in terms of tax advisory and also serving as a second set of eyes on any deals that we're seriously pursuing. Absolutely, yeah. And it's so important to diversify those the, that talent so that, you know, because no, no one person can can know everything and do everything. I mean, that's so important to make sure you've got people who can do the financial aspect, get the investors in, do the analysis of the deals. Um, when it comes to finding investors, uh, where where do you tap into that? Where do you find those people who are looking to so invest? So initially, as we first started out, they were personal connections, people that we that we knew. But what we realized is that between my partners and myself, most of the people we knew were active real estate investors. And why it sounds, in, re in retrospect, it's something we should have figured out sooner that people who actively invest in their own deals probably won't be your ideal passive investors. It was something that probably took us a little longer <laughs> to figure out than we should have. And perhaps, uh, of course, there's some unnecessary grief during our first capital raise. Of course, we, we really relied more so on them than we probably should have. So... In retrospect, what we learned from that is that you really want to target high-income earning professionals. And the way that we find that we have the most success right now, especially with the pandemic, is through social media. So my partner uses Instagram and LinkedIn primarily. I use LinkedIn and BiggerPockets. And we do it through a combination of posts and social media content. And just reaching out directly to people that may potentially fit the bill. So we're also going to be launching a Facebook ad campaign in the very near future. That's something we're working on currently creating all the content for now. And we figure that's another way to get people's attention who we're not actively connecting with already. So it just expands our base and gives us more people to connect with. 
Makes sense. You know, maybe this should have been one of the first questions I asked, but um, putting a deal together, walk me through that process of, you know, just start to finish, finding the deal, um, finding the investors, structuring it, and like what what decisions go into that process? Sure. So I can walk you through that because I'm actually doing that with two deals right now as we speak. <laughs> so the, the first step is getting the deal from the broker or from whatever source you're getting it from. For us, pretty much all of our deals come from brokers. So that's why it's important to have good relationships. So the two deals that we have now, one was an on-market deal, which means that it was actively marketed by the broker. They did a formal marketing package and they typically put it out to everybody on their mailing list. The second one we got was an off-market deal, which is generally only shopped to a select number of people. And the, the intent is that you're not doing a full marketing. And by not doing that, you're able to reduce competition. So depending on the seller, uh, they'll, they'll instruct the broker whether or not they want it to be on or off market. And after you get the deal, the next step is to do the initial underwriting. So the underwriting is, is basically the, the financial analysis. So what you're doing is taking the actual numbers of the property, the past performance, and you're putting them into your underwriting software to figure out, okay, what does the deal look like with acquisition? And then where can I take the deal after I own it? So there's, there's part art and part science to that. You have to use both your experience and your expertise and also the raw data that you see to figure out what you can realistically do with that deal. And then if the, the deal checks out and hits the return metrics that you desire, then at that point, the next step is to submit an offer. So in commercial real estate, most times an offer is done in the format of a letter of intent. And letters of intent can be either binding or non-binding. Most groups use non-binding ones, ourselves included. And what that basically means is we're expressing our intent to the seller that we have interest in buying a deal and we usually specify terms. So the terms will include the purchase price, the amount of time that it'll take us to complete the transaction, any money that we're going to be putting up as an earnest money deposit, any access, any due diligence documents that we may require. And it's going to outline the high level points of it. So after that letter of intent is submitted, what typically happens is then at that point that the seller is interested, they will sign that letter of intent and send it back to you. If they're not interested, they may just flat out reject it, or they may submit a counter offer and say, we don't like the terms that you proposed, but we're willing to counter you on this and this and this and see if this makes sense to you. And then eventually when you come to something that's agreeable, you sign, both parties sign the letter of intent. Now, if it's not binding, technically a seller could potentially continue to negotiate with other buyers but most sellers won't do that out of good faith because it's generally not the right thing to do. So mm -hmm. What happens after you get a mutually signed letter of intent is one of the parties has their attorney draft up a purchase and sale agreement. Uh, generally, I like to be the one that has our attorney do it, even though it costs a little more money. I, I'd always like to have our attorney do it because every attorney is most familiar with their own documents. So I'd rather have that as kind of like having home court advantage in a sporting event. <laughs> so right. we have our attorney draft the contract. Then what happens is our attorney sends us a draft. We review it, give them any feedback, and then they make any changes to it. And then, and then what ultimately happens is we send that contract to the broker and to the seller and to their attorneys so they can review it. Typically that whole process to go from letter of intent to contract, most times will take about two weeks to go back and forth. 
which there'll probably be some negotiation. There'll be things that each party wants to, to dispute and to negotiate. And then you have to work something out to come to an amicable re- resolution for both parties. So after that happens, that's about two weeks, you, then you sign the contract. And once both parties do that, then the buyer makes the earnest money deposit. Most times on the deals we look at, it's typically 1% of the purchase price. If you're looking at a very competitive deal in a competitive market, you may need to do more than that. And, and that's usually made within most times three business days of the contract being executed. Then from that point, your due diligence period begins. So with us, we usually require 30 days for due diligence, and we do 30 days after due diligence to close. And we usually also negotiate a 30-day extension just in case we need it because it's a lot easier and cheaper to negotiate it up front than to do it at the 11th hour when you need it. So we'll normally figure on 90 days to get from contract to closing. And the goal is to get it done sooner than that. If we can get it done in 60, great. If we get it done in 75, great. But if not, at least we have that 90 so so we can use that time wisely. And the, the first thing we do is when we have our due diligence, you want to get your financial documents. So we provide the seller with a a detailed checklist of items. And the way we usually structure our contracts is that the due diligence period doesn't actually begin until we receive all of the financial documents. Because otherwise you might have your due diligence period start and then technically you're on the clock and you may not get the financial documents from the seller until two weeks in. So if that happens, then you've essentially lost half of your due diligence period and that's not a productive use of time. Right. Then after we get the financial documents, the next thing I would do is schedule the on-site due diligence inspection. So every group does their inspection a little bit different, but with ours, we require access to 100% of the units. I don't care if the property is 500 units, we better have access to all 500 units. So you know what, if we don't, then as far as I'm concerned, that unit doesn't exist. And we're assuming that it's in the worst condition possible. (laughs) Right. So I would instruct everybody to do the same. That way you really do a thorough walk through the property. You know what problems you could potentially be inheriting and you can budget for that accordingly. So then after your due diligence period, now some groups do this a little bit different. They'll start probably sooner in the process than we will. We like to get about halfway through our due diligence process before we submit our financing application and before we have our SEC attorney draft our offering documents. And we do that just to make sure that we don't have any glaring red flags that are going to cause us to terminate the contract because once you pay those lender fees and the SEC attorney fees, those are typically non-refundable and you're not going to get that money back either way. So that's usually how our process works. Then from that point, we start working with the lender so they can order the third-party reports. And on the commercial side, third-party reports include an appraisal and usually a property condition report and also an environmental inspection. So those things have to happen before the lender can really make their decision whether or not to fund the deal. So you want to get those going as early in the process as possible. And then from there, what we do is we're typically committed by that point to it. So we work with our SEC attorney to get the offering docs ready. That typically takes two to three weeks. And then what you want to do is put teasers out to your investors along the way, but you don't want to give them exact numbers until you have your numbers really firmed up. And for us, that doesn't happen until typically the end of our due diligence period. And that's usually around the same time that our offering documents are ready so we can actually start raising money. Then at that point, we're in full capital raise mode. So due diligence is done. We decided to move forward. Our earnest money went hard, which means that it's non-refundable. And then the next step is 
we want to put the deal in front of all of our investors and we want to give them exact numbers. And what we'll typically do is we'll hold live webinars because we find that to be very successful for us. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll have our whole team on there. We'll introduce people to the team, even though most of them probably know us already. And then we'll go into the specific deal and say, okay, this is what we like about the deal. This is what's great about the area. And we give people the full overview so they understand what they'd potentially be investing in. Then at that point, the next step is to keep doing that until we get all the capital raised. So depending on the deal, the, the capital raise will vary. And you know, some deals you may get one person to fund the entire thing. Other deals you might need 40 people. So the key is to keep repeating that process until you complete the, the full equity raise. Excellent. And so how long is your typical timeline from, you know, once your investors put their money down to when you buy out of the deal? And also, when you buy out of the deal, do you prefer to, like, hold your uh, asset and refinance um, to make your profit, but then keep the asset? Or do you just sell it outright? So... Normally, it would be 30 or 60 days from the time they give us their funds until we close. And sometimes it may be less than that, depending on how late in the period they're investing. Once you've got the property and you own it, what is the payback structure? How long will the investors be waiting to um, to get their return? Sure. I mean, is it just going to be an ongoing cash flow or is there going to be a sale later on? So most times we structure our, our hold periods for two to five years. And what we do is we typically provide preferred returns for the passive investors. So, and those returns will vary from deal to deal. I mean, most times we usually use 7%, but it will fluctuate. And what will happen is with that preferred return, we pay it out quarterly. So preferred doesn't mean guaranteed. Some people mix those two terms up and there is a big difference. Preferred simply means they get paid before we do. So before we take anything out of the cash flow, they have to get 7%. And if for any reason it falls short, then what happens is there's a deficiency and we repay that at a later date when the property has the cash flow. So each quarter, the investor should expect to receive distribution checks. And then our typical exit strategy is a sale, which will return the principal at that time, then also any, any additional money due to them. So if a deal has a significant value in, we would consider a cash out refinance as an exit strategy as well. Thus far, we haven't had that happen. But actually, one of the deals that we were recently awarded does have that scenario. And I think that's something that could have a lot of potential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I like to hold my uh, real estate that I own. And and I just recently did a refinance to get some capital for I'm hoping to do some investments coming up soon. Um, but I mean, selling the property and making a profit is, is certainly also a great option. I mean, it's it's a win-win. Yep, definitely is. Okay, so um, we've got only a couple minutes left. If I had to ask you what your best advice would be for people who are starting out wanting to invest and um, do some sort of, I mean, would you tell them stay away from syndications for a long time until you're an expert? I mean, with people... I, I would never tell people to stay away from it. What I would say, you know, for me, I had a little bit of an advantage being I was already working for a guy who was a commercial real estate investor, so I had a leg up in that regard. But anybody can do it. What I would say is that if you're looking to get paid soon, then syndication is not for you. If it's something that 
you know, you want to go out and you want to make money in a month or two, you should probably go out and start wholesaling. Uh, but if it's something that you're willing to put some time and some effort into, and you're looking at a longer term strategy, then syndication is great. You know, I tell people from the time they start actively working on it, and by actively, I mean on a consistent basis, you're probably looking at three to five years before you start making real money in syndication. So how can our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested in your company or learning more about syndication? John, that's a great question. So every Saturday, I host a free underwriting session on Zoom where we underwrite a, an actual multifamily deal and it's an interactive session. So if anybody wants to, to join that, what they should do is just send me a text, 347-306-3278 or an email, charles at threeoaksmgmt.com and tell me that they heard me on your show and that they want to join the session and I'll be glad to send the link to them. Okay. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time today and I think we're going to end it there, but I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and um, we look forward to maybe having you on again sometime. John, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. With that said, I hope all of you enjoyed our program today. We'll be back next Monday with another episode of the More Doors podcast.